Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I'm welcoming Sumita Raguramu. She's an endowed professor of HR management at Lucas College of Business, San Jose University, California. Sumita, welcome to Making Remote Work. Thank you, Yulia. This is uh, really a pleasure and also an honor for me to be able to speak to you about remote working. Uh, this is an area of work that I have been engaged with for the past many, many years. Uh, I would say almost uh, 27 years now that I have been studying remote work. Um, uh, people call it telework, telecommuting, virtual work, many different names, uh, whatever you want to call it. But that has been my area of interest for the past many years. Uh, I have uh, in the process also published quite a few papers on this, looking at uh, individual level impact of uh, remote work and what makes people effective in this work mode. You are one of the few people I know and then to that I will be interviewing that has worked on remote work 20 plus years, right? 1992, 1993, the, the term wasn't even coined. Yeah, so it was interesting. We were trying to figure out uh, myself and my co-authors as to what do we call this. There were all these different terms floating around. Um, some people would call it telecommuting as, uh, and assuming that that telecommuting meant uh, going back and forth from uh, the place of residence, but not necessarily commuting. Um, it was a combination of the words tele and commute. And the other people, they were across the continent, there were people using the term telework. Um, and then there were some people calling it virtual work. And so we were kind of confused as to which would be the right term to use. Um, we somehow landed up on virtual work. I think even now there, we are calling it virtual work, distributed work, remote work, yeah. which we all mean the same, the same thing, right? But uh, we still call it differently. Would you be okay to lead us a bit through the history of remote? I think this is a unique moment so everyone can understand where we started and where we are right now with remote work. What are some trends? Sure. So when I first started studying it in 1990, early 1990s, like 1992, 1993, um, this was, uh, I discovered that this was something that was being examined by the transportation uh, researchers, the urban planning researchers, uh, trying to understand the impact of uh, people's movements and how uh, to their place of work and how to make this most efficient. Um, in organizations. It was uh, something that was being put into practice by um, the architects and the facilities people uh, to optimize space utilization. Because this was also a time when organizations were uh, trying to cut down on real estate costs. So partly it was driven by real estate needs, um, and then there were these um, uh, other uh, disasters which would happen, you know. Um, uh, uh, for example, we had this Northridge earthquake in California. Uh, I believe uh, it was in uh, 
1993 or 1994, uh, 1994, I think. And that gave a boost to uh, the use of telecommuting. And some of the earlier companies which uh, jumped into this were IBM and AT&T um, in a big way, uh, partly once again to cut down on real estate costs um, and to improve their uh, customer-facing uh, service provision. I visited some of the IBM facilities in Cranford, uh, New Jersey, just to see how they were managing this. In their case, it was, I believe they cut down five offices uh, to a space of three offices. So it was quite a bit of cut and they had cubicles to accommodate 1,500 people. But on any given day, they told me that no more than 300 people would come to office because they expected them to be remote. So in a sense, it was a mandated work, um, a remote work for them at that time. Uh, they were all also able to showcase their groupware as a result to the clients, interestingly. Uh, once again, this was in uh, mid-1990s. Uh, and then uh, likewise for AT&T, it was uh, 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 driven by cost considerations. Uh, then there were other companies such as NCR. Once again, it was driven by cost considerations. And uh, in all of these cases, it was somewhat of a mandatory program, which I found to be very interesting. Because later on, uh, companies, they started offering this on a voluntary basis. And now we seem to have come to a full cycle in some ways because of this pandemic, that it has become mandatory. When did it start to be driven by increases in productivity and uh, increases in engagement? So I think it was, um, the mandatory was sort of like a testing ground and people started looking at it and then they realized that, yes, we can offer it to people who are commuting from very long distances. And so rather than spend their time on the road, they could actually use that time to work from home. And so that was the reason behind it. Um, however, there were no clear cut metrics uh, to realize whether it was really lead, leading to increased productivity, but it surely was leading to increase in uh, the employee satisfaction. I remember one quote from one of the people I was speaking to, a facilities manager, and he said that it is like a field of dreams. Once people experience it, they do not want to go back. You know, So uh, it was definitely leading to employee satisfaction in a big way. Um, and then I think other companies, they started picking up from uh, there on and offering it on a bigger scale. And then came uh, the Clean Air Act, uh, which Clinton uh, had uh, uh, put into place and which gave the tax breaks to many companies. Now, the GSA branch of U.S. government was one of the first few to promote that in a big way uh, with its employees and it um, uh, rolled it out in a big way. So that was uh, at the government end, where they really thought that it is going to have many different benefits, including uh, pollution reduction. So that was the other aspect of it. Um, then let me say also in, with regards to virtual teams, I think that came in much later and in about 2000s, the interest, at least the researchers' interest in virtual teams 
And um, partly it was driven by the fact that much of the work was being outsourced um, to fix the Y2K bug. And people realized the benefits of outsourcing. And so many other things started getting outsourced. It was not just coding or fixing programming, uh, but many other things started to get outsourced. The higher end uh, uh, projects started to get outsourced at that point. And so people realized the benefits of uh, uh, time zone differences and how beneficial it can be uh, to enhance the productivity. And as a result, now we have a lot of interest on how virtual teams operate. <laughs> that is broadly the history. Does it still hold true that uh, women adjust better even now to, to remote work than men do? So I somehow never really got that feeling. And I would say I conducted a study in China. And even through my research, I never really got that data that women are just better than men or it is something that women would want more than men Okay. for a couple of reasons. So let me get back to the study in China. And I found very counterintuitive results that women were less likely to uh, participate in remote work compared to men. And uh, the reason when I spoke to some people, um, uh, they said was because in China, this was a consulting firm. Women have to be face-to-face because it's such a male-dominated profession that they need to be face-to-face to to justify their uh, presence, to justify their ability to work in that profession. Um, In the U.S. itself, I believe um, there was this idea that it can lead to work-family balance. Now, I have to give you some background about the mandatory programs and how they rolled out because uh, I I was really fascinated by it, to answer your question. And that is that uh, they put in a lot of thought into preparing the employees. And one of the uh, guidelines was that if you have children under five years of age at home, uh, you have to either uh, plan for some kind of a daycare for them or... Uh, some other means of taking care of the child so you're not interrupted while working during the eight hours of the workday. So whether you are a male or a female, it really doesn't matter because the non-work responsibilities should not be interfering in your work responsibility. Now, if you are in a voluntary program, then those boundaries are not made very obvious or very clear to you. And you believe you can handle both two things, um, but it is not that straightforward. Are there any other individual differences like uh, personality, experience that influence remote work? Absolutely. So some people are better at structuring work, uh, planning. You have a to-do list. Um, and you go down the list and you have your aims and your objectives. Some people are better at separating their work from their non-work life. They create artificial boundaries, psychological boundaries. And these are people who are better off uh, at, uh, uh, you know, at working at home. So we call this structuring behavior. The other one is uh, what we call uh, what is known as the need for affiliation. 
Now, some people have a strong need for affiliation in the sense that for them, working alone uh, will be quite difficult because they do feel the need for contacting people. But counterintuitively, when these same people are in office, they are also the ones who are likely to interfere in your work quite a bit because they constantly want to chit-chat with you. So it uh, depends on whether you're a high need for affiliation type of a person or your colleague is a high need for affiliation type of a person. So if you are a high need for affiliation person, then probably this is not the best way for you. Uh, but uh, if your colleague is, then you are better off staying away from people who are going to seek out a uh, company. <laughs> so that is the second individual difference, I would say. And then the third one I can add is the tolerance for ambiguity because this is a very ambiguous work environment. You do not know. Um, you, it is difficult to get feedback on how you're doing. It's difficult to get access to information when you need it. So you have to sort of work through the ambiguities in a daily uh, manner. So one way to reduce that, in, at least in this forced environment, is to reduce ambiguity for everyone who's. Uh, working remote absolutely because you don't know yeah. who is resistant or who is who's tolerant to ambiguity and who's not mm -hmm. or you know less <laughs> is the need for affiliation also related to how people identify with the organization and with their teams Sure. So yes, uh, those who have a higher need for affiliation would naturally want to associate themselves with some entity, with their, with their co-workers or with their organizations. And organizations can definitely facilitate this in them. Uh, supervisors play a big role uh, depending on how much support they provide them. And so, yes, that would be one way by which they can identify with the organizations. How can companies in this quite difficult time and, and strange time, how can they increase the likelihood that especially new employees that they are hiring right now start identifying with the organization, creating those bonds and really being a part and yeah, embracing their values, embracing their cultures, their goals? So there are two uh, points to the question you're asking. Uh, one is with respect to new employees, and the second is with respect to employees who have been there for a long time. Now, with new employees in particular, it is going to be very challenging because uh, you have to have that uh, social fabric uh, to uh, um, fall into place into the organization to attach yourself with uh, so that you know uh, uh, that you are a part of this, you identify, you you feel proud of that group or that organization you belong to. But if you don't even get to meet those people, you don't understand them, you don't know who they are, then that becomes extremely difficult to create that sense of attachment uh, with the people. Um, I mean, imagine how will you feel proud of a company that you can't even enter, for instance. Uh, or you haven't, you've barely ever seen. It is the physical art artifacts which play a very big role. And those being, uh, that being minimized, that contact being minimized, that ability to identify is going to be very challenging for newcomers especially. Even for the people who have been there, over time, this identification can get reduced because you are more in touch with your immediate environment. Uh, it could be a home environment. 
and it could be a client's environment. So for example, if you are working on a project team located in a, in a client's uh, location, then you may come more in contact with the client and the client's building than with your own building. And so you start identifying with the client more than with your own organization. And so even for the existing employees, it is important for the supervisor to keep reminding them, reminding them in the sense that communicating with them the news and events that are taking place in the organization, um, the important issues that might impact the employee, um, sharing with them the success stories or issues of concern so that they feel a part of the organization and how the supervisor and the organization is out there for them. So that even the virtual communication can play a big role. Would it help, for example, if the company would send over artifacts which are branded with a, with a company logo, like uh, mugs, phone cases, something, a sticker or something, or is it too superficial? No, I think that is a good idea because you do get reminded that, yes, this is, um, you know, a part of me. This is where I belong to and this is what I'm working for. And this is uh, where I'm spending, you know, a good part of my, my waking hours. You said that it's good for the leader to keep reminding them, right? To uh, share with them news, have uh, meetings with them. How often do you think should be an educated guest? So, yeah, I would say that if you're fully virtual, let me take the case of the current situation in the pandemic. One thing that I found very useful, uh, at least at our university, um, when, it, when we initially went into a shelter in place, uh, our dean was really very good in the sense that he would send out daily briefings because everyone was very stressed out very concerned. And so simply telling them what's going on uh, and how the university is dealing with it. So there are times when you need a daily briefing. But then once things calm down, you do not have that much uh, of a need for information. And so once in a week, perhaps is good enough, uh, because sometimes too much of uh, contact can also get annoying. You know, so once a week may be enough. And now, of course, we can have meetings over Zoom with the entire department. So that is uh, one way. Is it a matter of seniority as well? I'm thinking, especially with the younger generations that keep asking for feedback quite often, right? And they like this one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. discussions and they like to understand, are they doing good or not? Quite often. Do you think it's a matter of experience, work experience in general as well, of seniority? So, yeah, work experience does play a role because that reduces the ambiguity in terms of what am I supposed to do and what are the performance benchmarks. And if you do not have that experience or the know-how as to what am I supposed to do and the clarity, the role clarity, um, then you are likely to ask questions. And whether it is the younger generation or an old person who is a newcomer to an organization, I believe it's going to be the same because you're trying to find your way around. Another thing that will be affected, and I know you have studied this, is how people create knowledge, especially in remote uh, mm -hmm. setups. What can you tell us about that? 
So um, the fact that we are linked with technology clearly facilitates exchange of explicit know-how, words which are written, and these are easily transmittable and collatable, and uh, uh, people can go back to them, read them, and follow them. The casualty is the tacit part of the info, of the knowledge. And tacit part is where we have to be with the other person to understand uh, exactly how to do things. And, and the impromptu meetings, which might lead to tacit understandings, those are the casualty. Just yesterday, I was talking to one person, and she said that... Um, I no longer have this ability to run into people, you know, and just discuss the project that they're working on. I don't uh, get a feel for what's going on around me. I can only talk to my uh, my team members in a planned way, you know. So I don't have that impromptu meeting, which was helping her get a feel for the entire organization, the issues, the concerns. So that implicit part, the tacit part does get uh, lost. Can this be replaced in any way, but uh, by modern means of communication, like chats, WhatsApp, Slack, anything like this or oh, not? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so, of course, it is up to the organization to then uh, plan out um, and be focused on how to use people, uh, how to use technology to connect people. And you can have uh, many such uh, media uh, which can facilitate the social networking aspect. Uh, on an informal basis, because it is through the informal channels that people are more likely to be open and to be um, willing to share, you know, what they know and have higher level of trust with each other as they get to know the entire person, not just the work side of the person, but the entire person. Um, so yeah, that, those those uh, new media are very very useful in that regard. What could companies do to still keep a good level of knowledge creation, even if they've just moved to remote and it's new and it's frustrating and it's ambiguous and they don't know exactly how to deal with it. Do they have any tools in hand that they can use to make it work? So for, for example, um, w- one of the things that I would emphasize is frequent communication, explicit communication. You have to over communicate and you have to communicate through various media. Um, Many times we assume that people will understand uh, these the, as in a face-to-face interaction, but this is no longer possible. So you have to be very explicit in your communication um, and have them frequently. Those are the things that I would recommend. How can people in the same setting, right? We always talk about work and how people are going to be productive. But it's hard for them right now. And I've heard a lot of backlash on on LinkedIn and other social media that, hey, you always tell us what to do and how to work. But I have kids crying at home and Mm -hmm. half a day I have to I have to take care of my daughter who is uh, who needs to learn remote and I have to be there next to next to her. So half of my work day is gone and then I have to work in, in at night. So how can people still keep this work life balance or how can they make an integration that works better? So first of all, it is extremely hard, uh, especially uh, in the current situation where it's not just one person. You could be having your spouse who's working from remote. You could be having your children who are attending school or college at the same time. 
So you have to create multiple boundaries between multiple people, and that can be extremely challenging. So how can you do it? Perhaps you have to have a conversation. You have to have some kind of agreements with your family members uh, regarding who's going to be taking care of the young ones at what time. You have to prioritize your work uh, sitting together and uh, determine um, how you apportion the time between each other. And then create that workspace, uh, something which is comfortable for you to work in. Um, and you have to create that workspace uh, so that it works for everyone. So in my situation, I have my husband who's working from home, my son who's attending college, and myself. So there are times, of course, we, are, we have the luxury of having three rooms where we lock up ourselves. And there are times when we are working simultaneously. Uh, but that's the way it is. And that, uh, that's always fun, right? When three people start talking. We have bandwidth problems, you know, because then we are stealing the bandwidth from each other. (laughs) Uh, Sumita, tell me what are your reflections on something I've heard from practitioners. Um, They pretty much think of five different levels of working remote, right? And it starts really with the basic, I have an accidental need, um, plumbing issues or doctor issues, and I have to be work from home during that day, right? Mm-hmm. It's one day, maybe every second month, third month, but it's really accidental. And then up to the fifth level, uh, they were discussing five levels, uh, up to the fifth le- level where work and life become integrated, right? And then, you know, um, you can have, uh, you can take your kids to the kindergarten in the morning, come home, work for two hours. Then you you have lunch uh, and then you're working for four or five hours uh, altogether. And then you have maybe dinner or have some other personal uh, thing to do or mm-hmm. just have a walk mm-hmm. or a nap and then you work again. So it's way more integrated. Have you heard about these levels in research or are, how are you, how would you be looking at them? Yes. So uh, there is, uh, so I, uh, some of the research deals with it as individual differences in the sense that some people are segmenters and some people are integrators. And so it depends on your own personal uh, style and preference. If you are a segmenter, then it is possible for you to use that very basic level where you can, you know, go in and out of work and non-work domains very easily uh, while still maintaining the boundaries between the two. But if you are an integrator, um, and uh, again, if you are able to handle the two, then that's great. But if you have to work from home all the time, at five days a week, and you are a segmenter, then you are going to have a problem because you're no longer able to separate out, you know, physical boundaries. Uh, Whereas that might work for an integrator who's able to integrate the two and switch on and off very easily. Can this skill be gained? Yeah, I think you do require, as I mentioned, you know, the structuring behavior. So you you have to have some behavioral skills and you have to essentially uh, go through a checklist. Uh, Have I prepared my to-do list for today? Where do I stand at midday? Where do I stand at 4 p.m.? What else do I need to do? So prioritize that checklist. Um, 
figure out how you're going to approach the emails, for instance, or any other instant uh, messaging media that you are going to be distracted by. Um, have a chat with your family as to who's going to take on which kind of responsibility. So yes, these are skills that can be gained, but you have to be quite disciplined at it, uh, keeping the productivity goal in front of you. Would this also be stages through which company go through to end up working all remote or, or hybrid, but in a very efficient way, or this would have nothing to do with it? Uh, so a lot depends on the company culture out here and as well as the jobs, uh, that the, the, or rather the nature of business. If it is, for example, a manufacturing, uh, business, then this would be very hard for them. But if it is, uh, uh, organization, which is, uh, uh, let's say able to, have people work from remote, for example, a software company. Uh, then it depends on the culture of the company and how willing is it uh, to try out this uh, work mode. And organizations play a very big role in providing training to the people. And uh, they can uh, help them even plan out their uh, workspace, help the employees plan out their workspace at home, provide them some minimal amount of funds to set it up. So yes, organizations can play a very big role um, in providing training and providing equipment and also providing online tech support uh, to the employees. I have myself used a lot of tech support from my university as I moved remote uh, for remote teaching. And that was immensely helpful because I did not know many of the features of Zoom or, you know, so yes. So basically, don't just send them a laptop and let them deal with remote. Help them go through the period and learn, and gain that momentum. Uh, exactly. And I would add one more thing, and that is the performance criteria by which they're going to be evaluated. Um, and at least in the current times, you know, with, with respect to COVID, um, because it happened so suddenly, um, I would say that the performance criteria were, people were very, uh, uh, I would say, stressed out about how are we going to be evaluated, uh, both the uh, students as well as the faculty, because this is not a, um, this remote teaching is not something that we signed up for. And so, uh, yeah, and so it is, um, uh, I would say once again, uh, our university has taken a very uh, good approach to it. and. Um, they are leaving it to us to, you know, to uh, whether we want to have our teaching evaluations included or not. Um, and for the students to choose whether they want a for credit or non-credit uh, uh, evaluation on their course. So you have to loosen up or else uh, the performance criteria in such situations or else be very clear about what is the performance target you're going to be expected to live up to and then help the employee reach that performance target. So it's not just a laptop that you can send the employee off with. How do you feel about remote work under this pandemic? And is any of the research that you've read challenged at this point? So, yeah, the one thing that I feel um, is different this time is the speed. 
So it gave very little time for organizations and people to get up and ready with this. Normally, it is done in a very gradual basis. There's a trial period. Uh, people move from half a day to three days. So it's a gradual move, um, a learning process. Most of the research talks about that. It was full time. So there was no option that you could go to office half a half day a week, which has a different uh, flavor to it completely. The third thing is that it was mandatory. So it was not a voluntary uh, choice. So if I am a segmenter, I would have a lot of problem with this kind of a work mode. So uh, it is definitely different. Most of the research has studied this in a voluntary setting. And so we don't know to what extent the same findings apply. I will be curious after this ends, and I know you started working on some new research. I'll be curious what, uh, what you come up with and what are the results. Absolutely, yeah. You have been there at the very beginning. You've studied remote work for 24 years. What do you so, think about the future <laughs> of remote? So it's interesting. I've always seen remote work... Um, gaining some momentum at points of disasters in a sense or when people were pressed for need for remote work for example there had to be an earthquake uh, for people to think about it there had to be a 9-11 for people to think about it there had to be a covid for people to think about it um and People, organizations have either continued with this in some manner or they have gone back to the earlier ways of working. Um, it is almost like one step back and two steps forward. So I would expect some of the organizations which have passed the stress test in a way to accelerate application of some of these findings or their experiences and continue to offer this in some way. People have spoken to, have mentioned that they have now become very efficient and uh, they would want to continue with this and that they would wish their organizations would offer it to them. So it is very likely that going forward, organizations and employees would want this to continue. But on the other hand, I mean, I'm kind of curious to see how it might play out. On the other hand, we also have this economic reality. Uh, people are getting laid off and there are furloughs and people are concerned about their presence in the organization because uh, remote work can, in, in fact, I mean, some of the studies that uh, I have been uh, uh, carrying out and some of the data that I have found is that it has an impact on the performance rating that a person receives and their promotion chances. And so they might choose to continue, in fact, double up on their presence in office if they are worried about their work. To counter so, out of sight, out of mind. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and exposure so, does play a big role, so I'm curious as well. Absolutely. So it depends uh, quite a bit on the job security that the person enjoys, the type of job that the person is carrying out, and the organization culture. Quite a few factors. 
Would you make it voluntarily? So as I said, yeah, as I said that in my experience, when I have studied um, organizations, um, the ones which were more successful at it were the mandatory work uh, programs because they prepared the employees very, very well in this. They went through many different steps, um, right from how to get mail delivered to a post box, not to your home address because of privacy reasons, to setting up an office, to making sure you have adequate childcare, to making sure that you are able to set goals and communicate with your supervisor. So if it is offered in a voluntary basis, um, I would recommend to the companies to go through these steps and prepare themselves and their employees very carefully because frequently voluntary is just on the fly and organizations are not really geared up for supporting the employees. And that is very important. Yeah, and it is uh, definitely additional uh, training. Do you think that if we decide, especially knowledge workers, right? Because working remote is especially good for knowledge workers, has proven to be, to be very mm -hmm. efficient for knowledge workers. Do you think we, on the long run, um, we will have consequences like higher productivity or will we also face negative consequences like we will not be so bound to organizations, it maybe would be easier to switch from one another, higher rates of turnover. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, that is interesting um, because, yes, it does lead to more uh, hours when you can be very focused on your work uh, without getting disturbed, without getting distracted. And knowledge workers are more uh, focused on, um, let's say, creativity or, or, or analysis. And so for that, they do need long stretches of undisturbed time. And so remote work does help in that. Uh, manner. But I would hesitate to go the full remote, 100% remote, because you do need that uh, interaction with people to bounce off ideas, to get feedback. Uh, even for knowledge workers, that is a very important part. Many of your creative thoughts come through interaction with people over a lunch, for instance. And so you do need to have that in-person contact as well. Uh, it's and it doesn't work if it's family or friends it has to be colleagues right because they're working on the yeah. same subject. yeah you have to have the similar language to speak to uh, you, you know with the, with the people and you have to have similar goals or objectives uh, the background should be the same so yes thank you very much sumita is there a question that i should have asked you and i didn't um no, I think we've covered uh, pretty much everything. Um, yeah, the one thing I would emphasize is it is also a lot depends on the nature of the work that the person is doing. I know not, you mentioned knowledge work, but it depends a lot on the nature of the work. Yesterday I was speaking to a person and she mentioned that, yeah, it is okay uh, for a software engineer like me to work from remote. But what about the people who are fabricating? hardware. In the fab labs, you know, it's very hard for them to be working from remote. Um, so it all depends on the type of work that you have to carry out. Some 
for some it is easy, for some it is hard. So it is difficult to generalize. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. Thank you so much, Julia. Yeah. And looking forward to hearing back from you.